Hi, this is Dana Stevens. I'm Slate's movie critic, and welcome to the Slate spoiler special on the movie Sunshine. I'm here with the Slate culture editor, John Swansburg. Hi, John. Hi. John just walked out of Sunshine about half an hour ago or something. About half an hour ago from the uh, 10.30 a.m. showing, actually. It's an intense movie to see at 10.30 a.m. It was, now. yeah. I was surprised by how many people were there, actually. I suspected that I would be the only one, and there were probably like 35 or 40 people there. Probably mainly solo, right? People who want to go see a movie at 10.30 on a, a lot of solo, morning. Yeah, a lot of solo Danny Boyle crowd. fans is the sense I got, but uh, people were eating popcorn. Did they like the show? Uh, it seemed to everybody liked the show, yeah. But I think, you know, they were there because they knew they were going to like it. I don't think you go to a movie at 10.30 in the morning. If you're on opening day. On opening day, unless you think you're going to like it. So. Right, yeah. That's pretty much the hardcore self-selected <clears throat> fan base. Absolutely. All right, so good things first. Um, there are a lot of good things about this movie, which, by the way, we saw separately. And you and I were both saying that it's really good to have someone to talk about this movie with afterwards, both because of plot holes and sort of what happened moments, and also just because it's a very tense, exciting, suspenseful movie. And you sort of want to come out and debrief with someone. Absolutely. I, I saw it about six blocks from the Slate offices and almost got hit by three cars on the way back, uh, <laughs> thinking about various uh, elements. So I was really keen to do this spoiler because this is one of the times when I really actually need help unpacking what happened to the movie, but we'll, we'll get to that. Let's talk about what works and all the, the really arrestingly effective things there are about Sunshine. I mean, well, for, I just I thought the first hour and a half or so was, was great and practically perfect for what it was, which is a genre sci-fi thriller with quasi-philosophical ambitions. I thought all of that worked really, really well for the vast majority of the movie. I agree. I thought the first 90 minutes were paced perfectly. Um, the setup is relatively simple, but it's arresting. Uh, maybe we should say something about the setup. Yeah, the let's set- try to briefly outline the story. Okay, so the, there's not much exposition at the beginning. You're basically placed almost immediately on a spaceship, which is, uh, as uh, I think they say in a voiceover, uh, basically a spaceship that allows eight astronauts to be strapped to an enormous bomb. The reason that they are strapped to a bomb is that the sun is dying. We don't know why, but the... The year, by the way, is supposed to be 2057, according to the press notes, although I don't think they ever tell you in the movie what year it is. I but did the not point know. is, it's the very near future. Fifty years from now, the sun will be dying. Right, which is movie. which is a scary thought. So, apparently, this is the last best hope, as they as they say at one point, uh, is to drive an enormous bomb uh, into the into the heart of the sun. And basically restart fission at the center of the sun, or fusion, yeah. which is it that's happening? I don't know exactly. Exactly what the process Fusion, is. Yeah, they they say at one point physicists that, out there are burying their head in their hands. Yeah, there's a there's a ship's physicist who at some point says we've mined every piece of visible something out of the Earth. Like, and, and apparently, like you know, you really get the sense that everything that is on Earth that could reignite the sun is on this bomb, and and they need to they need to put it in the middle of the sun and hopefully reignite it, restart, uh, create a new star out of a dead star is what they is what they say at one point. Uh, this is all established very economically, by the way, in the first yeah. fifteen seconds. Or Much more economically than we're doing. Yeah, they just basically <laughs> say, look, you're on a ship. There's a, there's a bomb, and the sun is dying. And oh, and important important. There's been a previous failed mission. They say, welcome to Icarus Two at the beginning voiceover, and right. the idea is that Icarus One was a seven years earlier prior mission that tried to do the exact same thing and disappeared without right. a trace. So then things start to go wrong, right? Yes, and the things start to go wrong around the time where, lo and behold, Icarus 1 is discovered. That seemed to be where things go wrong in terms of the mission, not if not the movie. Is oh, yeah, real? I mean in terms of the mission. Yeah, yeah. Things are of, still good with the movie. Yeah, things point. are still very much good with the movie. They, they uh, discover Icarus 1, which is sort of been hiding behind Mercury, I believe. Its signal was lost because it was in the shadow of Mercury, which they And it's sending out a distress signal. And so it's sending out surprised. a distress signal. So they just, they're forced with an interesting question. Do we go and try to rescue the people on their 
presumably they're dead, so it might not even be worth trying, uh, or do they just keep going uh, on their mission, and, and that sort of becomes an interesting plot point. There's some philosophical discussions about whether it's worth stopping in and checking in. And ultimately, the in fact, they decide interest. that it's not ethically worth saving those people, even if they were alive, because hanging in the balance is the entire fate of planet Earth. But then one of them intelligently points out, well, hey, but there's another whole unexploded device attached to their ship, so we double our chances of success in our mission, so we have to divert. Right. Two last best hopes are better than one, is, is, the, uh, is the idea. They're out of range of Earth communications at this point. That's right. established really early on. So they can't radio back to Earth and say, gee, get, solve our ethical dilemma for us. They're, right. just, they're on their own. Right. They don't have anybody to sort of remind them, look, it's you. You know, if you guys do this, everybody is saved, uh, which is sort of interesting. I think that's one of the fun parts of the movie is that the further they get from Earth, the harder these decisions uh, are for them. They're the decisions about whether or not they want to do the human thing or do the humankind thing. Uh, and, they, and the different characters wrestle with that throughout in, a, in kind of interesting ways. I mean, I think the idea is also that they've all been chosen for this mission not only because of their individual skills, you know, one being the engineer, one being the physicist, and so forth, but also the fact that all of them are willing, if necessary, to sacrifice their lives for this mission. Right. You can't imagine what kind of psychological testing they must have gone through, but still, they all sort of managed to, to go nuts. They all managed to go nuts, yeah. There, there's a kind of interesting trope in the movie where people start looking at the sun and just becoming mesmerized by it. There's a sort of sun worship uh, element to the movie, which is sort of interesting. The the ship's psychologist, whose name is Searle, loves going up to the observation deck and sort of turning up the the picture to, to look at the sun so he can, and just sort of basking in its light, because obviously being that close to the sun is very different than being on Earth. But he can only look at it at like 3% or something like that, and he keeps trying to get the computer to push it up Oh yeah, there's this sort of, we didn't mention that there's this great sort of HAL-type, except she has a female voice, but right. there's a sort of HAL-type computer voice that they're constantly talking to, asking permission to do various things. And right. a couple moments actually where, although it sort of dropped, where that computer seems to be taking over the ship. Yeah. Icar- That's less of a central plot point than in 2001. But. Right. And Icarus is, is a more benign computer. <laughs> Uh, but she does every now and then uh, override their commands. I mean, her programming is obviously designed so that the mission will be completed. And, and at one point, the completion of the mission and saving some lives of some of some guys who've ended up out of the ship uh, are at cross purposes. And, and, and her instinct, the computer's instinct, is to go forward with the with the mission. Right. Uh, they, they have a very funny, like, uh, jovial relationship with the computer. At some several points, they thank the computer, which I think is nice. You know, Icarus, can you look up the coordinates of such and such? Thank you. And, you know, she's, she's very compliant. But this movie doesn't seem as wary about technology as 2001, by any means. No. It seems to have basic faith in the idea of, of this mission. And although it's a little bit Faustian to try to reignite the sun, the, the, the movie seems pretty much pro-mission. All right, so let's talk about when things really start to fall apart, with the mission, not with the movie. So, so somebody f***s up big time. Yes. Right? Uh, the so Navi- Navigator, navigator, I guess, would be his title. Yeah, I think his name is Trey. Uh, yeah, I think he's the navigator. So they, when they decide that they are going to um, go link up with the original Icarus, he's tasked with coming up with the coordinates so that they, because they need to recalibrate their trajectory towards the sun. And so he, he he does this, and apparently it's a lot. There's a lot of math involved, and he was he gets very stressed out doing it. And He gets it all right, but he makes one little uh, mistake, which is that he forgets to realign the shield. That keeps them from being fried. Yeah, which keeps them from sun. being fried by the sun. Which like seems like something you probably wouldn't overlook, or that. You know, someone should have been. You so know, basically, he's over changing the angle of the spaceship so that they'll go meet this other spaceship. But he doesn't actually put this big giant gold shield that keeps them from being fried into the right new, slightly adjusted position. And I love the scene in which he realizes and confesses to his fellow crew members that he forgot to do this. As I was telling you before, I just anyone who's ever made a professional slip up can identify. And you can just imagine what if the stakes were that high? Like, damn, I've destroyed the Earth right. by miscalculating and not, you know, not doing this tiny little bit of detail. Like, I'm not detail oriented enough, and the entire Earth will fry. Because exactly. Of it. it's, it's oh no, no, the entire Earth will freeze. Excuse me. Right, the, the entire Earth will freeze, and the, after the ship fries, uh, and the ship does begin to fry. And we probably shouldn't get into like all the details of that because it, it gets a 
little arcane, but suffice it to say, Trey is the the navigator. He kind of goes crazy because he's feels so bad about what he's done, and he needs to be sedated. And then, so he's like out of commission for the rest of the movie. He's basically. more or less out of commission for the rest of the movie. At this point, the captain's already died too. So oh yeah, the captain to... died. Yeah. Well, actually, no. He he dies because of Trey. The captain goes oh, out yeah, to fix right, Trey's right. mistake. You're right. Because in in allowing the shield to fry some part of the ship, the captain has to go out to fix that, and he sort of sacrifices himself. So then they actually go over to the old Icarus. Uh, now here's where things I think start to fall apart with the movie a little bit, and agreed. also where I start to get confused with what happened. So let's just cut to the bit where they they've docked up with the other, you know, the old ship, Icarus One. They've opened up this kind of porthole, and some, you know, guys from the mission, not everyone, is sent through to investigate this old ghost ship, right? Right. Now, at that moment, and anybody who's seen the movie who's listening to this knows what we're talking about, there's this strange point of view shift. This thing happens that hasn't happened yet in the movie, where you suddenly see these flashes of this close-up of this freaky-looking face of someone we haven't yet seen in the movie. You see him in, you know, fairly close framing, as if someone is looking right at him, but we don't know who that someone is. We don't know where the point of view is coming from. Like, who's seeing this guy, right. this hallucinatory-looking guy? And if there, there really are flashes. I, as, I, as I told Dana, like, I actually thought it was a mistake when I saw the first one. It seemed like maybe someone had accidentally spliced something into this you know, reel that I was watching. But then, two minutes later, it happens again. But it's, like very, it's almost subliminal at first. I mean, it's so quick. You, know, uh, you blink and you, would, and you would miss these sort of uh, shots of this, of this kind of terrorizing face. Um, and you don't really know... As Dana said, you don't really know. Is this one of? Is this a foreshadowing device? Is it supposed to be someone from someone's perspective who we don't haven't met yet? It's just unclear. It seems like a, a sort of cinematic affectation that doesn't really do. Yeah, anything. to me, that's really a failed shot. I mean, it wouldn't be necessarily a failed shot if we eventually discovered, oh, it's so so and so's point of view, and that means they're going crazy, or that means that they're you know getting in touch with the divine, or whatever weird thing is happening in their mind. But instead, with that close up flashing business seems to be saying is this guy, who you and I have now come to nickname Roasty Toasty because of his extremely sunburned appearance, this sudden new dude in this very claustrophobic movie where there's only been seven, eight, whatever, the same people the entire time, is supposedly actually getting through the porthole onto their ship? Do you think that that's what's happening then? Yeah, I do. Although I don't know why on earth they would decide to use these uh, spliced-in images to suggest that's what's happening. But it turns out that this guy, Roasty Toasty... Is actually w- Captain Pinbaker? Is Captain, that his name? Captain Pinbecker or Penbecker of the original Icarus. Now, the original Icarus, they get over there and it's all dusty and it's all been shut down. There's still oxygen on the ship and there's still um, plants growing and whatnot. Uh, they, they, all these ships have their own sort of like farms where they grow carrots and things like that so they can have food to eat, so that was kind of interesting. And oxygen, right? And it's oxygen. Also yeah, they also produce oxygen because this obviously is a long trip to the sun. So uh, the entire crew of the original Icarus they find uh, dead in the observation deck, sort of fried by the sun. It seems like they've had some kind of ecstatic experience looking at the sun. And, and But it turns out also that they've just given up, that they kind of went crazy uh, along the way. And that's and, to me, is all, again, really effective and creepy and cool. It is, yeah. You just get the sense that maybe you can, you can see the other ship already starting to fall apart psychologically, and you just then you, you jump to Icarus and say, okay, like, it happened to them. It, maybe it happened to them a little bit more quickly for whatever reason, but they too sort of, because of the tight quarters, because of the momentous mission, because they started looking at the sun for too long, they, you know, they just started going nuts. Right. Um, now, understandably, you- Searle, the captain, I mean, the, the medical officer who most identifies with these with these Pompeii-looking, burned-out um, crew members of the former mission, elects to stay behind with them because somebody has to... For some reason, I don't even remember why. Like somebody has to stay behind to close the porthole. The reason he has to stay behind is that the the, port, the connection between ship one and ship two is broken at a certain point. And they don't know why. It's a big plot question mark. 
it's not clear why the ships are detached kind of violently. I guess the, the conclusion we eventually reached is that Roasty Toasty did it, Roasty right? Toasty did it, yeah. I mean, I think that's <laughs> If you the don't only... know who did it, it's, it's got to be Roasty Toasty. Yeah, Toasty's. exactly. I think that that's a safe call. They later try to pin the blame on Trey, who's the sedated, crazy, stressed-out guy, but I think it's pretty clear in, in retrospect that Roasty Toasty slips onto Icarus 2 and then tries to disconnect the two. And meanwhile, he's, like, fried Icarus 1's computer. Like, he's really Well, he actively... just doesn't... He doesn't want the sun to be reignited, essentially. Yeah. He's decided... He had... The, he's there, They find a some kind of uh, recording of him where he's talking about how, you know, God has decided it's time for Earth to die and, you know, who are we to question God's God's will? And he's sort of speaking in these kind of biblical tones and biblical language, and he's obviously just gone off his rocker. Not really clear what he's been doing for seven years, just kind of twiddling his thumbs. Like, <laughs> maybe he assumed there would be another mission and he should stick around to make sure that it doesn't happen uh, or doesn't go through. But anyway, he comes across the portal onto the Icarus 2 and starts kind of wreaking havoc. But let's make it clear that this is really unclear when you're watching the movie. Like, we're retroactively constructing now that Rosie Tosi pops across during this this you know hookup of the two ships and then he's sort of lurking on the other ship but you have no idea that's happening when you're first watching the movie so no, then it, various scary things happen and some of them make, make it back to the ship some don't we rejoin our claustrophobic sort of being picked off one by one ten little Indians in space kind of world right and then suddenly, there's this sort of Jason-style, roasty-toasty assassin running around stalking people on the ship. And to me, I just I felt that the movie had totally betrayed the purity of its own premise that it started out with. I agree. I, that's that was my feeling exactly. Like all of a sudden, you have it's not this, near as scary. Yeah, to know whether roasty-toasty is going to get right. Them or it's not. like it becomes sort of like a slasher flick in this kind of disappointing way. It doesn't totally ruin the movie. It's just like, as Dana said, like bef- up until that point, the movie had allowed each character to sort of slowly develop their own psychosis uh, based on this mission and all the pressure that they were under and allowed those feelings of being trapped in the ship or not knowing you know there's there are a couple of interesting moments where different characters realize they're probably not going home that you know they don't have enough oxygen or that you know one of the comm towers gets knocked down and you sort of re- see different characters realizing it's now about trying to get this mission done but I'm not going home right and and how they react differently to that I mean right. some of them are more noble and others as I would probably be are just more cowardly and craven and want to do anything to get right out of there. one character throws a sort of memorable tantrum when he realizes as his, uh, his time is up. and But other ones actually make some very noble so- sacrifices. One of the characters who you kind of think at the beginning is a jerk turns out to be one of the one of the more willing to sacrifice himself characters, which is a nice twist. But once you have Roasty Toasty running around on the ship, it does sort of lose some of the sort of slow, interesting psychological drama that the, the movie's built up before, and it's disappointing. Still, nonetheless, there's still a conclusion even after the Roasty Toasty run around Friday the 13th, disappointing last quarter, last half hour or so then we still do get back to the big question, which is, are we or are we not going to reignite the sun? Which is right. pretty much the ultimate spoilable. I was saying we have to do a spoiler on this movie, because what's more spoilable than that? Do they right. reignite, or do they not? I know. Maybe we should have started by just saying, so, the sun, it gets reignited. <laughs> <laughs> so the sun does get reignited. But After a very protracted and strange pseudoscientific final moment in which they're plunging. They're actually on the bomb, right, at that point? There's just a few of them left. Kappa, the main character, played by Killian Murphy, the physicist. Right. And his sort of romantic interest, insofar as there's any romance going on, it's between him and They share a peck at one point, I think, uh, or just maybe some sort of mournful looking into one another's eyes. And some sort of deep emo conversation as they Right, they talk about their dreams. Yeah, so, you know, they seem to be a little bit of an item. They end up being the last two along with Rosy Toasty, and they end up on the bomb. So the ship, we, we maybe should have described at the beginning, the ship is sort of like, the front end is a bomb, and then the, the back end sort of looks like a stick attached to the, the bomb. And the bomb is supposedly the size of Manhattan, they say, yeah. which I love that image, because Manhattan, if you think about it, is actually sort of shaped like a bomb. You know, it's just a great, to imagine Manhattan flying through space full of right. nuclear fusion material, <laughs> right. it's, it's pretty scary. Right, so they're piloting Manhattan into the sun, that's, that's the uh, basic idea here, and 
but the ship is in sort of in two places, and the whole the idea from the beginning is that the ship would detach from the bomb, and then the ship would go back to Earth, and everybody would live happily ever after, which of course seems to be a ridiculous notion. I mean, I even I don't know if you picked up on this or if you thought the same thing, but the ship blows up after detaching. So I don't know if that was meant to say like these guys were never going to make it in the first place. Who knows? Because so many things have gone wrong. That's, by that yeah, point. that's the thing. So many things have gone wrong. Maybe if Com Towers One and Two had actually not been burned up by Trey's miscalculations, then everything would have been fine. Well, that's why I mean the beginning is so tightly plotted because you can actually trace back each thing. Like if Trey hadn't done this, then this wouldn't have happened. And if Icarus had not overruled Cassie's voice command, then the captain wouldn't be dead. And if the captain wasn't dead, we'd have some leadership around here. And you can sort of trace all the things. Right. Up until Roasty Toasty makes his completely unheralded and illogical appearance. Right. At which point you kind of say, well, why did I do all the work to follow all this pseudoscience in the first place? Right, exactly. So they end up on the bomb portion of the of the ship, and the ship itself blows up. So it's, it's Roasty Toasty and Kappa and uh, his, his girlfriend sidekick. At that point, it does, like, there are, like, three or four false endings. Like, it's not really been established very clearly what has to happen in order for the sun to be reignited. I personally thought it was kind of ridiculous that you have this Manhattan-sized payload of fissionable material that's going to reignite the sun, but you also have to put in a key in some kind of code in order to, to detonate right, right. it yeah, in order for it to work. Right, right, yeah, you also have to crawl, you have to crawl bleeding to the computer keyboard to finally punch in that last little code. Right, I, I don't really know what the what the movie is saying. So if you didn't punch in that code, all that stuff would just land in the sun kind of and just kind of, you know, sit there blissfully, not blowing up and not reigniting the sun. And the sun is a ball of fire. You would assume that if there's explosives on this, in this bomb, they would just blow up. But our hero, uh, Kappa, does uh, manage to... I, I don't really even know if he kills Rosy Tosi. He rips off part of his arm, and then he gets away from him. And then he keys in the code, and then... And, and at that, that point... There's sort of another kind of false ending, and then there was a scene that you that I think you were frustrated by as well, uh, where he sort of does ignite the bomb, and then it takes quite a while for it to blow up. Well, it just seems like at that's one point. I mean, I'm willing to accept a lot of cheesy pseudoscience from this movie in exchange for it being a great suspenseful narrative that you can believe in on its own terms. You see Killian Murphy sort of standing in front of this wall of fire, and yet he's still sort of inside the ship. You can still sort of see the stuff behind him and his computer keyboard or whatever, and he kind of reaches out his hand ecstatically. And the idea is that he is burned to death in the middle of the sun, but that it's this sort of glorious moment, you know, which is which is fine. But the, the way that the wall of fire gets that across. It just seemed to abandon all physics and all of the science that sort of held the rest of the movie together. And I sort of would have rather just seen a long shot of him burning up, and we just sort of know in our minds that he's having an ecstatic union with the sun. I agree. I Otherwise, it gets too theological or, or mythical for me or something. Yeah, it's heavy-handedly uh, mythical. I wanted it to be a, a, a long shot as well, and particularly given that they, they set up this notion of this wall of fire. Because you know earlier the movie has been very clear about how you cannot even get a fraction of the sun's light near you or you're going to get burned up. They're very clear. At a certain point, you know, 3.1% is all you can, you know, is is the filtering that you can have without getting absolutely toasted. And here he is sort of in the sun looking He's at He's basically like rushing the stage. Know, like, yeah. dude, the sun. Yeah, I so can't it, get any closer. Right. It's, it's sort of ridiculous in this way that the rest of the movie isn't, uh, or at least doesn't get quite to that level. So. so we've probably spent more than a quarter of our time trashing just one quarter of the movie, but would you say that the first three quarters of it is strong enough that you'd still send send your best friend to see this? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And I almost, you know, I think I'd almost see it again. I really yeah, I wanted to see it. it again this morning with you, if only to sort of sew up some of these plot holes. But it is, if what you like is to grip the arms of your theater chair with sticky palms and not from jujubes, <laughs> then this is, this is really a good movie to see. And if you don't like suspense, I actually 
tried to get someone to go with me who gets really scared by scary movies. I mean, it's not necessarily scary in your typical thriller way, but it's right. just suffused with a sense of dread very, very effectively, I think. I agree. What do you think about the the very ending? We, we talked a little bit about this. I mean, it, it, I had just seen uh, 28 Days Later, which also has a sort of similar kind of coda tacked onto Another it. Another Danny is, Boyle movie. I was not turned off by this happy ending, even though happy endings can often be sort of uh, unsatisfying. Oh, yeah. We didn't even talk about the happy coda. I mean, by right. happy ending, we don't mean Killian Murphy being ecstatically burned by the sun. That right. may be happy for him, but they actually managed to reignite the sun, we assume, because we get one shot back on planet Earth. and The first shot on planet Earth, Who actually. we realize, yeah, the very first one, which is the last shot of the movie. And there's this woman who we put together from the voiceover is his sister, right? right? Who's listening children. years later to this transmission that he sent back, because it took all that time to arrive. And he's saying something about if you go outside, it's a particularly beautiful day one day, then you'll know that we succeeded. And, you know, I wouldn't call it a beautiful day, but she gets like a little bit of a dim sunlight in this frozen landscape that has, wasn't there some land, some landmarks? That yes, it's a Sydney Opera oh, House. that's right, that's right, the Sydney Opera House in the <laughs> right. background, Planet of the Apes style. Right. Because everything's completely frozen white, right? Right, but yeah, the Opera House. her kids are playing in the snow, and all of a sudden the sun, which is looking very dim, and then it kind of lights up, and you get the sense that, you know, even though everybody died, they, they managed to pull it off. I'm, I'm totally fine with that happy ending. I mean, there was so much dread, and, you know, you really get to like these characters, and they're picked off in these horrible ways, and I was sort of glad to get a little glimpse of earth saving there. The I agree. End. I agree. If you told me in the abstract that that was sort of how the movie uh, ended up, I might have been disappointed. But the suspense and, and the sort of pain you feel on behalf of a bunch of these characters who are who are pretty winning, uh, not all of them, but a bunch of them, you do kind of want them to save the day. I mean, the alternative would have been pretty unacceptable. Like, all of our favorites get to live, but then the earth itself is destroyed. <laughs> what kind of ending is that? Then they're all high-fiving because they're alive, and then they realize, oh, shit. What have we got to go back to? I agree. That would not have Although worked. that's certainly setting up Sunshine too. Yes. Right? Right. Icarus 3. Can we just make one comment before we go about the idea of naming your sun reigniting mission Icarus in the first place? I know. Maybe I, not the best mythic reference if you want to. I wanna... know. I thought it was kind of a nicely uh, ironic name for the ship. And it, it sort of fit with the with the crew because, I mean, the, these guys are all relatively idealistic uh, to some degree. Um, but, you know, they also seem to be pretty understanding about what the chances are that they're, they're actually going to survive. Even though, like, when they do have these realizations, you know, later that they're not coming back. They, they seem to be pretty shocked by it. I don't know. They all seem to be somewhat droll. Uh, and, it, and it seemed like they would, if they had been given the chance to name their ship Icarus, they would have done it. I wonder. It would be kind of cool to see, to watch this with a bunch of NASA types, you know, a bunch of actual space nerds and see what how, how they would have done things differently. I mean, of course, they would pull the science to bits, right. but it would just be kind of fun to hear them talking about the, you know, on-ship dynamics and so forth. Yeah. They probably would have named the ship, like, Excelsior or something. I mean, come on, Icarus? <laughs> John, thank you very much for uh, watching this movie and joining me to talk about it. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, anytime. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.